Amen. So um, we're continuing in our study of First Corinthians. Um, we skipped a couple of weeks, but we're getting we're getting back to it. Um, as I mentioned last week, um, in skipping over this chapter, um, we come to the portion of the letter that led us to look at the Corinthian letters. Some people had some questions several months back about just various things in the Christian walk, and and rather than you know, skip through the New Testament and pick verses here and there to try to answer it. I, I really feel it's always better to find a passage, a book of Scripture that addresses those questions and see them in the context. So that is why we're in Corinthians in the first place. And now we come to some of those issues, or at least one of the issues that raised many people's questions. And so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start with the first seven verses. So read along if you will, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of ministries, but the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, thank you so much for your presence here this morning, Father. Uh, thank you for the privilege that's ours as your people to bring our requests before you. Um, Father, the confidence we can have when we give you thanks for the good things you've done in our lives. We know that you're active and you're involved in our lives and in our world, and we thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, we do thank you for your word, and as we look to it this morning, we ask you would um, guide us by your spirit. We want to hear from you, Lord, not the thoughts of man, but we want to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my intention this morning is to look at the chapter as a whole. It's presented in the text as a whole, and we're actually going to go through it twice. The first time, we're going to address some of these questions that come up in the, in the passage, questions people have, and then we're going to go back through it and look at what really the main points are. Because one of the things that happens, and I think you can probably understand this, is when you're reading along in the Scripture and you see something that you know, doesn't necessarily make sense, you go, wow, what's that? And you can kind of get focused on that, and that isn't necessarily the main point of the chapter. So we're going to go through, identify some of the questions, and then try to go back through and see what the really, uh, really critical issues are. So we're going to try that approach this morning. Um, so let's start with some of the common questions, and by no means all of the questions. If we were to try to address all the questions addressed in this chapter, um, we'd be here till Christmas, and I still wouldn't be able to adequately answer them all. So we're just going to talk about some of the big ones. Uh, the first one, right in, in the very first verse, where Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Many of you will notice that in your Bibles, the word gifts is in italics, right? And that's because it's not there, right? They put it there, the translators put it there to make sense of the translation, to make the translation an intelligible translation. So, um, and of course, when we talk about spiritual gifts, what's the first thing that comes to everybody's mind? We need to talk about tongues, right? We will when we get to it. So just, just be, be, be patient. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about spiritual stuff. Because that's literally the word that is used here. It's just spiritual 
stuff, spiritual things. That's what Paul's talking about uh, in the list. But before we get to the list, just one of the quick questions I want to get to is this whole matter, because this is the, one of the questions that people have, is what if this whole business of, of Paul saying nobody can say Jesus is accursed by the Holy Spirit and nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the whole... What is going on in those first few verses, right? Classic example of where something is kind of unclear to us because it's so culturally far away from us. Most of us come to faith from a more or less secular background. We have a secular worldview, drastically different than Corinth. Virtually everyone, except Jews, who came into the Corinthian church would have come from an overwhelmingly pagan culture. And what they were used to, their understanding of the spiritual world, were pagan temples. And I think we've all got a fairly good idea you know, how that must have worked. You would go into a pagan temple, and here would be a statue. Uh, and if you go to the museum in Corinth, you can see many examples of these statues. Some were beautiful, some were horribly grotesque, but there would be a statue, and it's a rock, and it's there, right? Well, what, could, what does that do? So then they would have like a prophet or a priest or somebody that would speak on behalf of the statue, or something like that. A really good model, uh, if you know anything about the Oracle of Delphi, Delphi's not very far away from this. The whole idea was you would go to Delphi, you wanted to ask a question of the gods, Apollos in this case, and so you'd make an offering, and then they would have this poor young girl who would breathe these toxic vapors and go into convulsions, and then the priests would interpret those convulsions, and then you paid him a bunch of money and you got the information when you left, right? Well, it's all this delusional expression of what some god someplace is trying to say. What Paul is saying here is you leave all of that behind. And it's necessary that he says it here because if you think about it, when we start talking about different ways the Holy Spirit moves through his people, God moves through people by his spirit, there may be some superficial apparent similarities. Right? God speaking through a prophet. That would be something that would be similar in the Christian experience, similar in the Old Testament, and similar, at least at a very superficial, in a pagan worship environment. So what Paul is saying is there is no common ground here. Right? Again, the terminology is not clear to us because our worldview is so much different. Paul is just saying that what you're experiencing in the church has nothing, to com nothing in common at all with what you just came from. He's making a really clear demarcation there. So that's that, those first few verses there. But what of this list of spiritual gifts? And, and here's, here's the list. that just kind of go over it quickly. Paul talks about a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith, healing, the effecting in the works of miracles, prophecy, the distinguishing of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. What is this list all about, right? Well, first off, um, nothing in the text suggests this is like a fixed list. We somehow get the idea sometimes that this must be like a checklist that the early church you know, would check off to make sure we either had all of them or nothing beyond them, right? I would strongly suggest that this is not Paul saying, here's the church checklist. This is Paul is saying, these are the kinds of things the Holy Spirit does in his church. This is the kind of things we can expect to see. Okay? And what are they? Well, what they are is simply enough manifestations. That's kind of the word to keep in mind because as I pointed out, I just had a show of hands. How many of you in your Bible, in that first verse, the word gift is in italics? Okay, so... 
Those of you who don't have it in italics, you can believe me. I've got, some, I've got some people backing me up, right? The word there is not gift. And here's what's going on with that. There is a word for gift like we think of as gift in, in biblical Greek, right? It's the word voro, right? Like on your birthday, you get a voro. On Christmas, you get voro. Hopefully on your anniversary, you get voro, right? Yeah, hopefully. If not, someone needs to work on something. But that's not the word that's used here. The word voro, gift, never appears anywhere in this chapter. That isn't the emphasis. There's actually four different words that are used, and they're effectively used interchangeably, right? The one in the first verse, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, where it says gift is nevmatikos. Nevmatikos. And it's related to the word nevma, right? And any of you that work in the mechanical world should have an idea what this means. Anybody got your tires changed recently? You know that obnoxious sound? That rat-a-tat-a-tat-a-tat-a sound when they change your tires? That's an air gun, right? It's a pneumatic tool, right? That's how you can remember that word. That is a tool driven by the force of air. Well, the word nevma means air or spirit. And that's a really, um, I mean, it seems kind of, you know, mundane, but that's a pretty good analogy of how the Holy Spirit works. You, you can't see the air being transmitted through the hose, right? Even if you could see through the hose, you still couldn't see the air because it's not visible, but it transmits power. So this word nevma means air or breath, and so when, we, when Paul says nevmatikos, he's talking about things the Holy Spirit does through his otherwise invisible presence, right? So it's spiritual stuff, things of the Spirit, right? The next word, it appears down in verse 4 where Paul says this, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. That word, translated gift, is charisma, and it comes from charis or grace. And the point there is, and that's the most common word in the chapter. That is the word Paul uses the most. And the emphasis there, it's where we get our word charismatic, if you're from that background or familiar with that, the emphasis there is, it's another word that means gift, but the emphasis isn't on the gift. The emphasis is on the unmerited favor expressed by the giver. See, we talk about a gift. Our thoughts, our attention go to the gift. Here's a gift. Go have fun with it. Or whatever you're going to do with it, right? Use it, right? When this word is used, the emphasis isn't on the gift. It's on the unmerited favor, same word as grace, same word as the word for grace. It's on the unmerited favor of the giver. So the most common expression through this chapter is God's unmerited favor being expressed to his church. That's the backdrop to all this. The next one is the one in verse 5 where he says there are varieties of ministries, right? And that is the diakonia, which just means a waiter. Now, we think of the word deacon in our church. That's where our word deacon comes from. And we attach that to an office or authority or a title. And it really means is, when you go into the restaurant, the person that brings you food, right? In other words, the focus is on service, okay? So we're talking about things of the Spirit, even though the Spirit may remain invisible, right? We're talking about things that are a byproduct or produced by God's unmerited favor, and we're talking about acts of service, right? And then the last word that's used throughout this chapter, it's the one that's in verse 7, where it says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And that mean, just means to make visible. 
It takes that which by its nature is not visible and make it visible or can be heard or can be seen or can be touched. To take something that we through our natural senses cannot apprehend and make it apprehendable, right? So all of this stuff Paul talks about in this chapter has to be seen through, if I can say this, the lens of those four ideas. There's four different ideas that frame everything Paul says in this chapter. They're spiritual in nature. They're, none of this is born of ourselves. It's all born of the Spirit of God. Um, it's all an ex expression of His unmerited favor and goodness to us. It's intended for service. It's intended to help. And it's intended to reveal the character of God. That's what we're talking about. So now let's go through the list, what the Holy Spirit does in the church that can be described in these four ways. The first thing, a word of wisdom. Okay, what's a word of wisdom when the Holy Spirit manifests Himself? That's really simple. That's when, and we tend to, if I can use the expression, over-spiritualize a lot of this stuff. It's like when somebody calls you up and they're in a bad situation in life and they just need some good counsel or some good advice and you're praying with them and all of a sudden, you know, the right thing to do comes to your mind or to their mind and it's born out of that discussion and you're praying together, what should we do? That is, that's a classic example of the word of wisdom. The Holy Spirit just gives wise counsel through his people. It doesn't even have to happen. In, it could happen over the phone. It doesn't have to happen in a church service, right? But what happens when somebody calls you up and you pray with them and the answer to their situation becomes clear, either to your mind or their mind or collectively what it's doing? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's an expression of God's unmerited favor and grace. It serves a purpose. It serves a need and it manifests the presence of God. Okay? The word of knowledge is very similar. That is more than um, wise counsel. That would be something of a, more of a factual kind of a nature. And my favorite example of this, a, a word of knowledge at work, um, back when, when Pastor Joyce and I were in Homer, uh, there was a gentleman in the church there. Uh, his name was Max. And Max was the head of maintenance at one of the canneries. They used to have these really big canneries at the end of the spit in Homer. And Max had, he, and he would be the first to tell you, he had no formal training in refrigeration or any of that stuff. But he had, over the years, just through faithful, doing his job, had, had gone to the level that he was the chief maintenance guy at the cannery there at the end of the spit, the biggest cannery. Now, if you've ever worked in one of those canneries, you know that the amount of money in product that flows through one of those canneries in a day is unbelievable. It is amazing. One of my first days there, uh, I was in the crew that boxed up the salmon and stuck them in the truck, right? They paid four of us to unload one of those trucks and look at every single box because somebody had mislabeled three boxes of king crab. There were three boxes of king crab that got labeled salmon. They paid us to go through that entire 40-foot van to look for those three boxes. So valuable were those. So I just say that to say there's a whole lot of money that moves to those canneries every day, right? And you can imagine what happens in a cannery when the freezers quit. It's like panic time. And I can't tell you how many times Max stood up in church and testified and said, something was shut down, I had no idea what it was, and he would stop right there and pray right in front of everybody. God, what is wrong with this freezer? And he would say time and time again, God showed him what it was, and he'd fix it. Now, that did not come from Max's training. It came from the Spirit, right? It came through the unmerited favor of God, right? Max didn't earn that, right? It met a need, and because Max was bold enough to pray in front of people when he did it, it demonstrated the power of God. 
So that's where the word, word of knowledge is, right? Uh, faith, we all have to have faith, right? But we also know there's times and situations where in the body of Christ an increased measure of faith is needed. And that's where he's talking about, the gift of faith. Same idea with the gift of healing. Sometimes there's things that are beyond. I was fortunate enough this week to have a situation that someone through their skill and their training was able to address. Thanks be to God for that, right? But sometimes there's things that are beyond human ability. And that's when we look to God, right? And what happens? When by his grace and mercy he responds, we can say it's by the Spirit. It's due to unmerited favor. It accomplishes an end, and it manifests His glory, right? The effective working of miracles. This is the word dynamis, from which we get our word dynamite. I love that, right? Yeah. That's when we just need something to happen. And we get together and we collectively pray, and God manifests His power in the church, right? Prophecy, we've talked about that before. There's a lot of confusion about prophecy. Some folks think prophecy has to be predicting the future. That's not it. That's whenever we get together and we pray and we seek the face of God and God speaks an appropriate word. It does not have to be about the future. My favorite example of this is the prophet that approached David. And he said to David, David, we got a problem. King, we got a problem. We got, we got a rich guy that's got all these sheep and he's got a neighbor has got one little sheep. And a, and a visitor came to you know, visit the rich guy, and he had to feed him a meal. So he, a low life, he took a sheep from the little guy, and he sacrificed, and he killed that little guy's sheep just to feed his guest. And David was living. How could he do such a thing? And then what did Nathan say? You're the man. That was all past tense, and it all happened in the past. But Nathan used that story to communicate to David, God knows what you did. And he's not happy. See, that was prophetic. Prophecy simply means to say whatever God has to say, to speak the words that God wants spoken. And what is it? That's by the Spirit. Due to His unmerited favor and grace. Accomplishes a purpose, manifests God's glory, right? Then, the distinguishing of spirits, right? Okay, that means, you know, some people have really good intuition. I think more of the female gender. Can't prove it. But somebody shows up, and they're just not right, and they know it. Then there are those of us who are basically clueless to these things, like me. Oh, that person was messed up. I didn't know, right? But sometimes in our interactions, especially when we are mindful to be in a place of prayer, we interact with somebody, and we go, I know where that person's coming from, and it's not good. Or it's good, right? We can distinguish their, what's going on inside of them. That's a gift of the Spirit, right? All of these things, just practical examples. Tongues, what is tongues? People get so amped up. And rightfully so, it's important. It's God speaking through us in a language we do not know, right? It may be for a specific purpose of, of speaking to somebody that you otherwise couldn't speak to. There's historical examples of that. There's examples of it when nobody knew what it was. The Bible speaks of the languages of men and the languages of angels, right? It's simply an unknown language by which God's will is made manifest. And then the interpretation of those. And we'll talk more about this when we get into chapter 14. Chapter 14 is more of the details as to how this should be handled in the church, how it should work. Now, I know there are some folks who go, well, actually, these gifts were in operation in the first couple of centuries, but they stopped, okay? If that's your theological persuasion, I'm cool with that. We can disagree about that, right? And here's why. Well, I'm not going to tell you why yet. I'll tell you why when we get to the main point. 
when we, get, we go back to the chapter again and get to the main point, then I'll tell you why I'm okay with that, all right? So, we've gone over the gifts. What are they? They're spiritual in nature. They're unmerited. It's the favor of God. They're empowerments to serve, and they demonstrate the presence of the Spirit of God. None of these gifts are personal property. Again, the emphasis is never on the gift. It's always on the unmerited favor of the giver, right? Next question I'm going to look at. What is this matter of one baptism? People have questions about that. Verse 13. For by one Spirit we're baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Some ask the question, which baptism is this? Because you had the baptism in water, and then you had the baptism in the Spirit, which John the Baptist talked about, Jesus talked about. Which baptism is it? When we ask that question, we demonstrate that we're missing the point. That's our Western analytic thinking. I want to chop everything up and put it in boxes. I want a box for this baptism. I want a box for that baptism, all right? I would point out that Scripture never makes any attempt to distinguish between those two. There is no attempt in Scripture to distinguish between the baptism in water, which every Christian should experience, and the baptism in the Spirit, which every Christian should experience. It's the same baptism. The only place where they are clearly distinguished, and I'll let you read this on your own later, is Acts chapter 19, this first six verses. That's the only place where there's a clear delineation between those two baptisms, and it is clearly presented as an anomaly. Paul responds to that situation by literally saying, what went on here that you got these two separated? Read the verse on your own. You can understand what I mean. Scripture never describes those two things as two separate baptisms. Baptism in water, baptism in the Spirit. We know with certainty, because Scripture tells us, that when one is born again, one is called by the Spirit. That's John chapter 6. One is born of the Spirit. That's John chapter 3. One is filled with the Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. One is sanctified in the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 6. Altogether, this is what baptism is about. It is a connection of what happens when we come to God in salvation and we are immersed in His presence. No distinction in the baptisms. We may experience the Spirit differently. We certainly will. We may see the Spirit's presence in our lives differently. We certainly will. But here's the critical thing to understand that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is the animating force in the life of every believer individually and of the church. There is no other animating force we can look to. There is no other source of life to bring the presence and power of God immediately into our existence save the Spirit of God. And that we have in common. That commonality that common experience of the Spirit breathing life into us is what defines us. We're so used in our Western Christianity to define a Christian by the doctrine they espouse. If you espouse the right doctrine, you must be a Christian. That's not biblical. The biblical definition of a Christian is somebody who was animated by the Spirit of God. Born again. The Corinthian church was by every account the most gifted charismatic, spiritually on-fire church of the New Testament. Yet they rob that of its power 
because they lost the commonality that they all shared and they were a divided church. And we've seen that from the very first chapter, right? All right, last question I want to take time to talk about is what is this matter of stronger and weaker and more honorable and less honorable? Is that stuff found in verse 22? We can look at that and go ahead and read that. So starting in verse 22, Paul writes, uh, let me back up a little bit, not verse 22, let's back up to um, verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Is it for that reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, uh, I'm not part of the body. Is for that reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body was hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or of the head, I have no need of you. Or of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body upon which we deem less honor, those we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked it. What is he talking about? He's simply drawing an analogy. It's an extended analogy that says, look, the body is made up of a human body. That's all he's saying. And it is an analogy. We don't want to press it too hard. It's made up of many members. Some members of our body look better than others. Right? Some members of our body are designed to be presented to the public. Some members aren't. And so we cover them. We put a lot of effort in appropriately covering the members that shouldn't be seen. Right? Some members are really important. Isn't it ironic that the ones that are really important tend to be more vulnerable? like the eyeball, and how much effort and thought do we put into protecting our eyes, right? Paul is simply saying, look at the human body. It's composed of different parts, and they're drastically different as to their presentability, as to their vulnerability, as to their strength or their weakness, but they all have something in common. They're all necessary. You take one part away. Joyce has been reading this I don't know how she reads them. She gains profound spiritual... She's reading The Gift of Pain, by the way. It's about a doctor's experience of leprosy. I can't read that stuff. It just bugs me too much. I guess I'm a wimp. But she reads that, and she really gleans this great stuff out of it, and she shares it with me, and it kills me. Right? She's talking about this person that loses their toes. That's horrible. It's a toe. How much attention do you spend on your toes? Not that much. But could you imagine life without them? No. It's a simple point Paul's making. Our body is made up of many different members, but they're all absolutely necessary. That's the point he's been making all along. And he says in verse 25 that there should be no division in the body. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's what that big, long analogy is all about. Don't get lost in the analogy, right? Paul's making the same point, right? So that's just some of the questions, right? But what are the really big issues that Paul's trying to address here? And I think we've already kind of talked to those. The first one, we've already seen it. There should be no division in the body. Varieties of gifts, same spirit. Varieties of ministry, same Lord. 
varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all things. No division. There should be no division in the body anymore. Did you notice the parallels in those verses? I'll read them again. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things. There's a parallelism to the Godhead there. And what is Paul saying is, there is no more reason to expect, or that we should expect to find division in the body than we find division in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit are never divided. Even so, the Spirit, the church, should never be divided because that is who identifies us, who creates us, who we are, right? The second point to make, I want to repeat that. The first point is unity in the body is a product of unity in the Godhead. The second point is our individuality does matter. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. Paul never suggests that we sacrifice our individuality, you know, for the good of the church. No. We may choose to make personal sacrifices, but we are valued each individually as much as the church itself. The third point is this. Our individuality is intended to be expressed in the body. One of the most dangerous things is when somebody thinking they're operating in the power of the Spirit steps outside of the body and begins to, for lack of better words, lone ranger it. Many years ago, I had a situation we dealt with where somebody that um, thought they had a particular spiritual gift, I'll go so far as to say they thought they had the discernment of spirits. So independent of any cooperative action, I won't say supervisory, but just cooperative action through the church, the body of Christ, this person then started to go around and tell people what kind of spirit they had. You have a spirit of this, you have a spirit of that, and none of them were compliments. Right? You can imagine the devastation that caused. Right? If for no other reason than when they walked up to a pastor and said, you have a spirit of a carnal mind, and that got out in the community. Ask yourself this. How was that person, again, a pastor, but it could have been anybody, how was that person supposed to defend themselves against that? How do you disprove that? You can't. And the destructive force of that was profound. So all of these gifts are intended to work within the body so that a, a, a if you want to use the word supervision, a matter of uh, joint responsibility is there. Again, that's a really important point. These gifts are intended to be expressed in the body. And finally, again, no division in the body. That the members should care. That's what he says in verse 25. There should be no division in the body, but that the members should care for one another. Verse 27 effectively summarizes everything Paul has said. He said, now you. And he's talking to one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament. right? He says, now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. He doesn't say some point in the future, after you get all this stuff straightened out, you guys read what I wrote, get it fixed, and then you'll be Christ's body. No. Right where they were at that moment, as messed up as they were, because of the Spirit of God moving within them, he would say to the Corinthian church, you are Christ's body. And individually, even those of you who are messed up, right, causing all these problems, you are still members of this church. That's Paul, the Corinthian church, not me to you. Let me make sure I'm clear on that. He says to the Corinthian church, you're Christ's body and individually members of it, despite their flaws. 
and not a mere portion, but his body, both collectively and individually members of his body. That's the point of the passage. Now, there's an awful lot more information about the operation of gifts and givenness. We'll talk about that when we get into chapters 14 and 15. There's a lot about what God can do and He does in the lives of individual believers. The indwelling of the Spirit of God in manifesting His power and presence. But all of that is to one end. Building up the body of Christ. It's all about building up His body, His church. Again, judging by the content of these two letters, Corinth was the most spiritually dynamic church of the first century, but the value of that was greatly diminished because they'd lost track of what was most important. Manifesting the character of Jesus and building up the body of Christ. And that's a singular goal, right? Now when we get to chapter 13, because these three chapters all talk about the same subject, we'll set the tone for ministry. Chapter 14 will lay out guidelines for ministry. But this is what I would suggest for as far as we are. I think each one of us should be asking ourselves, what am I contributing to the body of Christ? And if this isn't your regular church, if one of our visitors, what am I contributing to that body of Christ? That expression of the body of Christ. And not just natural giftedness. We have natural gifts that we can contribute through. And that's great. That's absolutely necessary, right? But in terms of the Holy Spirit working inside of me, and I know that's a little intimidating for some people, to think, really? The Holy Spirit work inside of me? Well, if you have questions as to the possibility of that, just realize for a moment the one who you are questioning isn't yourself, but the Spirit. Because He can work through any of us. And He does. Ask ourselves the question, each one, what am I contributing by allowing the Spirit of God to work through me? What am I bringing to this fellowship that is spiritual in nature, expresses the unmerited favor of God, is an empowerment not just for myself, but for others to serve and to demonstrate the presence of the Spirit of God in this church. If your answer is, gee, I don't know, or nothing really, that isn't a reason to go off and like, you know, get down on yourself. That's a reason to spend some time before God. And asking, Lord, what should my contribution to the body of Christ be? Now, I can sit here and say, you know, I've been in ministry for 40 years. I can point a finger at somebody and go, I got a pretty good idea what you should be doing. And I might even go so far to offer you a nudge in that direction. But that's as far as I'm going. Because it is so much more powerful when you hear from God. It is so much better when you enter into that time of prayer and you begin to ask God, God, what should I be contributing? What is my place? What is the gift? And it doesn't have to be one of the gifts on the list, by the way. What is my gift to offer this body that will strengthen and build this body? And when you begin to, to, to walk in that, or if you're already walking in that, when you experience the depth that walking in that can be, it becomes one of the richest and most rewarding parts of our Christian walk. Father, I thank you that, Lord, as we um, start to talk about this, and there's so much in this whole subject to be talked about, the way you manifest yourself, sometimes supernaturally, sometimes in ways that are so subtle, it's easy to miss that it's, it's the Spirit. 
Father, but as you begin to manifest yourself in, in our presence, Father, that is how we grow as a body, Father. That's how we grow as individuals, as we lend ourselves to that. And I pray, Father, that all of us, all of us would spend time this week asking ourselves, what should I be contributing? In what way am I a vessel for your work in this body of believers, Lord? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. This